Sawabona, and thanks for listening. My name is Jim Clark. I'm the U.S. Marketing Manager for Wines of South Africa. Welcome to our podcast, where each episode we explore some new aspect of South African wine. We'll be talking with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we'll also give a sommelier a chance to share their impressions of the wines. Obviously, this is an audio-only medium, but for links to the wineries we're talking about, maps of relevant wine regions, and some other visual aids, please go to our website, wosa.us, and click on the podcast tab. We're going to start today with some history. In November of 1924, a professor at the University of Stellenbosch, Abraham Parold, conducted eight different grape crossings. All but one of them were of table grapes, grapes meant for eating. But the last one, a cross between Pinot Noir and Cinso, was a wine grape. He planted the seedlings the following year, and 1925 is generally considered the birth year of Pinotage, a name he gave the Pinot Noir and Cinso cross several years later. Cinso locally had been known as Hermitage. So Pinot Noir plus Hermitage became Pinotage. If he had felt differently that day, we could be listening to a podcast about Herminoir or even Herminot. Today, Pinotage is South Africa's third most planted red grape variety, occupying about 7.3% of the vineyards. But its role in representing the country's wines is much bigger than that suggests. My name is Aubrey Beslar. I'm from uh, Kanonkop Wine Estate. I've been the winemaker here since 2002. Pinotage at Kanonkop has a very long history. In 1930, Kanonkop was part of Eightcake, which was a farm that's currently behind us next to the mountain. The owners then, it was Paul Sauer's parents, they wanted to sell the bigger property, but he was very interested in wine farming. So they kept a piece for him, about 140 hectares of land, and they called this property Kanonkop. So Kanonkop meaning Cannon Hill with the mountain behind us having the signal cannon on top of it. So that's where the name Kanonkum came from. This was just after Pinotage was created by Professor Pirolt. Some of the first plantings took place at Elsenburg Agricultural College. It was quite close by. And in those years, Paul Sauer, then the owner of Kanonkop, a city Deval that was involved with Elsenburg, a researcher there, and Pierre Morkel from Bellevue, they played rugby together. And one day after training, they sat down and they tried this new experimental wine that was made from Pinotage grapes. And they all loved it. And that's where some of the first plantings of Pinotage actually started with Bellevue at that point and Kanonkop. This was already in the the 30s. And to think we were planting Pinotage already in the late 30s when the first commercial one was only made in 1959. So it showed you, I think, the conviction of Paul Sauer and the people involved at that stage in the quality of the varietal, to plant these vineyards, to believe in them, even if there was not even a a Pinotage label that existed in those days. So that was just the history of Kanonkop. And we stuck with the variety over the years, even if a lot of people were not all that positive. Today, we have some of the oldest Pinotage vineyards still in South Africa. One vineyard was planted in 1953 that we still create our black label Pinotage from. In 1959, Morkel's Pinotage from Bellevue won the Best Red Wine Award at South Africa's Young Wine Show, a show designed to show off unfinished wines so that negotiant merchants could buy them. Lanzarak purchased that wine, as well as more Pinotage from Kanunkop, blended them and bottled them together, and released that wine in 1961. 
This was the world's first commercial pinotage, as Aubrey mentioned. Kanunkop would go on to win that same award, and their pinotage remained part of the Lanzarok bottling until Kanunkop began bottling their own wine in 1973. In 1991, Kanunkop's pinotage would win then-winemaker Byers Truder the Robert Mondavi Trophy for Best Winemaker in the World. This timing is important. That same year, most international embargoes on South African products fell, and exports began. Just as South Africa's wines could begin exporting to the world, the world had told South Africa that Pinotage could be number one. However, not all wineries were making Pinotage at the same level as Kanunkop. Good day. My name is Jeremy Borg, and I am the founder and winemaker of a family and friends wine business based in Pal in South Africa called Painted Wolf Wines. I grew up in deepest, darkest Africa in a place called Malawi, and my parents had the occasional bottle of wine at the table. So I was aware of what pinotage was as a teenager. But when I finished college in, in the United Kingdom, I started working for a hotel in the north of England owned by a very famous chef called John Tovey. John's hotel in the north of England was called Miller Howe, and at that stage had a wine list that was made almost entirely of South African wine. This was unprecedented at the time. It was in the very early 1980s, and John was a very famous cook. He was one of the very, very first television cooks ever. He had a TV program on Granada Television in, in the United Kingdom, and they cooked a very elaborate and very fancy fare at the hotel. And Every evening, the main course would be paired with a South African wine. And it was at that time that I first started to become acquainted with Pinotage and actually other South African brands. Well, I am South African, but I wasn't that familiar with a lot of the main wines at, at the time. But yeah, we had some of the old KWV Pinotage and some of the other old wines. And I have to confess at that stage... They were really not my favorite amongst the portfolio of wines that we were showing at the hotel. I found them at that stage to be quite tannic and tough. My penetrage journey actually started in California. I lived in the United States for nine years and was a restaurant chef and then a restaurateur and eventually sold my restaurant business and I started to work for a wine retailer in Berkeley. And at that stage, we used to get various winemakers throughout California coming into the shop and bringing their wines in, guys like Joel Peterson and people who were bringing Zinfandel into the shop. And at that stage, Zinfandel was not very popular in the United States. There were a few producers who were considered to be great producers of Zinfandel, but on the whole, the Zinfandel was rustic, unbalanced, often high in alcohol, had unwieldy acid, was really not terribly exciting stuff, notwithstanding the Ridge and the Ravenswood and one or two other producers. And Zinfandel was also much maligned. I worked in some fairly fancy restaurants in the Bay Area, and many of the sommeliers and the wine people in the restaurants were not that enamored by Zinfandel. But over the years, I saw Zinfandel turn from being a kind of wine embarrassment to some degree to becoming an American treasure. So I came back to Africa in the mid-1990s. I worked in the safari business in Botswana for a number of years. And then I returned and I 
started working actually for Fairview Winery, who at that stage were making perhaps the most modern South African wines. Charles Back, the owner of Fairview, is a visionary forward-thinking person, and he had adopted quite a number of winemaking techniques and winemaking thoughts that basically came from Australia, fruit-lifted, fruit-forward, soft tannin, sweet wood. And it was there that I saw the possibility that Pinotage could be something that wasn't how a large number of consumers and wine journalists perceived it to be. Pinotage developed a very, very poor reputation for being an unyielding wine with lots of odd flavors. And even today, you find people who really have actually no expertise in Pinotage whatsoever. And their views of what Pinotage might taste like are based on a perception that was around, or a reality, not a perception, that was around 25 years ago. But unfortunately, and this is sometimes the case with things in the world, is that a tag that sits with a person or a wine or anything that is negative actually continues for long after that person is reformed or that wine grape has found some new thinking and some new winemaking philosophy. And when I arrived at Fairview, I realized that that Pinotage could be this other thing. And it also intrigued me and excited me that with the right application and with the right energy, this much maligned pariah grape variety, which Zinfandel had been in the United States in the 1970s and early 1980s, could actually be turned into a South African hero. And that was sort of what in part drove my ambition to try and be a credible and hopefully one day great Pinotage producer. Every grape has its challenges, and it takes a long time to learn best practices for an entirely new grape variety. There is no historical record to lean on. It makes sense, too, that a child of the notoriously fickle Pinot Noir would be particularly hard to tame. The first challenge was figuring out terroir. And for many years, South Africa was led by marketing and by demand in the market, not so much by quality as the first priority. After sanctions was lifted in 94, that actually increased. As soon as somebody, for instance, the UK market, if there was a spike in sales, for instance, Sauvio Blanc, the local marketing people will recommend to plant Sauvio Blanc because that's what's been selling very well in, in other countries. So we were, for a long time, I think we weren't led by quality or terroir. We were led by what was selling. Of course, coming out of uh, sanctions, there was a lot of challenges. KWV or Distel, they didn't take all the wine anymore. So people were sitting on loads of wine that they had to market themselves. So the market was important. What did the market want? So that was quite important. But because of that, it took us another 10 or 15 years to figure out, in the long run, the right terroir for the right varietal is the most important thing. And I think so... This is, this is, can't be more true than for a variety like Pinotage. Then secondly, because we were allowed to do anything, people were, were making Pinotage like they were making their Shiraz or Cabernet or Merlot, whatever. Most guys had, had more or less, I wouldn't say a recipe, but a very similar way of making wine. And when you try to look at how people make wine in Burgundy and how they make wine in Bordeaux, you realize how far this was not correct to do. And it took a long time and it took dedicated people like Bayer and other people to focus on the variety, to figure out what was 
the challenges with this variety to get to a point that we understand it today much better and can manage it much better. So for all the people that had a bad experience with Pinotage, I must say 90% of the times it was winemaking decisions and faults, not so much the variety. If you have Pinotage planted on the wrong site, you can still make a beautiful lighter style Pinotage or even a beautiful rosé from it. You can't necessarily make a big structured red wine out of it. That's when you're going to mess it up. So you have to understand the terroir and what it allows you to do with the variety. So for instance, if you have the right terroir and you have really good conditions, the next challenge is to grow at bush vines, which is not all that popular because you can't mechanize it firstly. And secondly, the yields are lower. So people want to get bigger yields to make more money if you're a primary producer. For us, that can convert uh, the value of lower yields into value by putting it in the bottle. It's a different story. So if you trellis pinotage and you allow it to grow, you're going to get big yields, which will also give you lighter style wine. You won't be able to get the structure that you want for high quality red wine. So that's another challenge. Then when the grapes come to the winery, and you look at the chemistry of pinotage, it has a a very high malic acid content. It has normally has quite a, a average to low pH, and it also have a very high nitrogen content, what we call the YAN value, yeast assimilable nitrogen. So to give you an idea, if I pick Pinotage today and I pick Cabernet today, the same day and at the same sugar level, and I use the same yeast at the same temperature, the Pinotage will ferment in half the time that it takes the Cabernet to ferment. So it's very, very fast, a very fast fermenter. And that's mainly due to the high levels of nitrogen. Then, because it has a high malic acid that converts to, to lactic, you lose quite a bit of acidity. And because of that, the pH climbs quite aggressively. So most winemakers know as soon as the pH goes above 3.5, you have other issues with other bacteria like lactobacillus and pediococcus and some of these bacteria can actually create a component called acrolein and this component can be very nasty on the palate it creates a bitter experience but that's totally due to not managing your microbes accurately in the winemaking process so coming back to the fast fermentation when you have this very fast fermentation you have to manage your extraction differently so that means we focused a lot of our extraction on the first part of fermentation when the alcohol level is still quite low. So at that point, you're going to extract more color and also, what I say, more friendlier structure. It's not going to be so aggressive. At the end of fermentation, or the second part of fermentation, which is only a day and a half later, we do much less extraction, trying to prevent the negatives that can come out of the skins or out of the pips so that you end up with a good structure, but none of that unfriendly phenolics that we don't want. So we do very fast extraction. We do punch downs every two hours, 24 hours a day, in the first part of fermentation, and then we slow down to six or eight hours in the second part of fermentation. If you're used to only making Shiraz or Cabernet or Merlot, you'll find that these varieties ferment much slower. So the type of extraction that you can use with them is very different from what you should use on Pinotage. So just to summarize, the nitrogen allows for um, very fast fermentation and the malic acid and the conversion of that creates higher pHs in wine that allows for other spoilage bacteria to actually also grow 
in pinotage more so than in other varietals. So we will manage that by sterile filtration as quickly as possible, getting everything out of the wine that shouldn't be there and just having healthy, friendly wines instead of, of something that's weird or strange or yeah, not lacquer. A final piece of winemaking much talked about in the context of pinotage is the use of new oak. The wine that won Byers Truder the Best Winemaker in the World Award was the first pinotage that he had used substantial amounts of new oak on. We've been using new small oak barrels for many, many years. And some of the stories that my predecessors will tell, Jan Boland Kutsir from Friesenhof will tell you, you know, back in those days, the owners of the cooperages, they will come hand deliver your own barrels because it was such an uncommon thing to buy these small barrels or new wood barrels in South Africa because of the price, of course. I can't recall if it was a 1973 or 1976 wine from Simonsig that my predecessor, Bayer Tritri, he tasted this wine somewhere in the early 80s. And as he still recollects today, this was the most incredible pinotage he ever tasted. And he went to Simonsig and asked him, what did they do? And they said they ordered these barrels for Cabernet, but the barrels came early. So these barrels were laying around in the cellar and they being being not only winemakers, but also businessmen decided but to put some wine in there until the cabinet was ready to go to barrel. So they put the pinotage in there for six months. And then when the cabinet was ready, they took the pinotage out and put the cabinet in for the extension of the maturation time that it needed. And that's how some of the first pinotages really got new oak treatment. And I still talk to Bayer today. That will be one of the big decisions why he started using new oak on pinotage. Today, we will do about 40% of our pinotage will go into new oak for malolactic fermentation. And then on the total production, we will use about 80% new oak on our pinotage. I think the variety really handles oak well. We're living in times where there's a lot of you know, controversy and people moving away from new oak. I, I still think the best wines in the world haven't changed the oak regime that dramatically over the years. If your wine can handle the oak, then you should give it oak. If your wine can't handle the oak, then use older barrels or no oak. We can't say new oak is bad for wine just because you want to have a different sales pitch than somebody else. It's become more of a fashionable thing to use older barrels and really saying, listen, my wines, I like to be in a more accessible style. That's why I use older barrels, then people saying, listen, I've got uh, the structured wines that will, will increase with quality of the right amount of new oak. Perhaps they wouldn't be all that accessible in the year after barrel aging, but after two or three years, they will be incredible. With the fundamentals of making Pinotage well established, the grape's ability to express terroir is becoming clearer and clearer. Certain areas and pockets of vineyards are becoming well known for their particular expression of Pinotage. On the soils of, of Simonsburg Mountains, where we are situated at, it's decomposed granite soils. And Pinotage planted in bushvine form, or the goblet form, as the French call it, it seems to do really well. The, the shoots aren't too long, and the berries are quite small bunches of smaller berries. And also on the other side, when you get to the Butleray Hills, which is not far from us, but this is where Bellevue is situated, they also have almost perfect conditions for growing quality Pinotage. And because the wine was good over the years, and we find a certain consistency in the quality and the style that we got. We stuck with the variety. People always talk about noble varieties, but 
is, is nothing more noble for me. It's something that's quite specific to the terroir where it's grown. And when you look at, at proper white burgundy or German Riesling, they're very specific. And Pinotage is the same. If it's grown on the right spot, you'll find the most incredible wines. But if it's farmed in areas that's not supposed to be grape farms or Pinotage farm, then, you know, you don't get that quality. Nonkop have a very long history because of the quality that we receive from these vineyards. We, we stuck with the grape. I'm Emil Ross, winemaker at Hamilton Russell Vineyards, Southern Wright and Ashbourne. We produce three different pinotages, two of them predominantly from the Walker Bay area, and one specifically only from the Yemelin Arda area, and then one from the Swartland, which is a much warmer region with different soils, and that Swartland wine does include a little bit of Sinzo in a blend as well. I think it's logical that Pinotage is grown in bigger quantities in areas like Stellenbosch. That's pretty much where it originated. But what I've found with fruit from cooler climates is definitely ripeness at lower sugar levels. In the Yemelin Arda Valley, we see that we've got more hours in that optimal temperature and sunlight band. So even though we ripen Pinotage quite early in the harvest season, it's probably because of these optimal growing hours that we get within a day. Without these very high temperature spikes that you find in some of the warmer regions, nighttime temperatures are probably similar, but we, we hardly ever get over about 30 degrees Celsius in a day. And that gives the vines more operating hours in a day, if that makes sense. And we get tannin ripeness and sugar ripeness at relatively low sugars. That's been the biggest difference for me between warmer climate and cool climate pinotage. I think with a cooler climate, you've got very good natural acidity. A pinotage is something that gallops towards ripeness. And with very hot days, you get very good flavor concentration, but your acidity tends to drop quite a bit. And then you get quite a high pH wine with a lot of tannin and high alcohol. Where I find the cooler climate stuff, it's probably a terrible thing to say about pinotage, but you get almost a more European old world palate. It's not as rich and ripe and sweet. It's slightly leaner in style with a lot of more delicate flavors and a beautiful brightness and length in the wines. I think our southern right is more towards that fresher style and now, that's simply what we get from the vineyards. We often find ripeness at around 13 alcohol, where some of the warmer climate stuff I've worked with needs a lot more time to fully ripen the tannins. I think the fresher style comes with, with the climate. I think there's no need to ripen to very high potential alcohols to get the tannins ripe. For the Ashbourne Pinotage Shinzo, we started in 2017 with a very much a small experimental wine. In 2018, we managed to secure a very old, well, in South African terms, I guess very old block of Pinotage planted in 1973. It's in Jubaz Kloof in the Swartland on very deep granitic soils beautiful site. The bush vines and the age of the vines really help to ripen what it can and then we can pick around 13 potential alcohol and produce the style of wine that we want to produce from that. I found that the older vines just naturally control their crop better. 
they take their time to ripen a crop that's sort of in balance with what they can produce, where younger vines, if, if not managed properly, can often lead to a bit of overcropping. And then just because of the sheer vigor of the younger vines, you get high potential alcohol before tannin ripeness. A young Pinotage vine really can be a bit of a rocket ship. The Ashbourne Pinotage is from the same vineyards as the Southern Rite, except we do source from properties within the Yimmel and Arda to get some more fruit for Southern Rite. The Ashbourne is a selection of the best rows in our favourite block of vines on Ashbourne. From a winemaking point of view, the Ashbourne Pinotage we treat very similar to our Hamilton Russell Vineyards Pinot Noir, very gentle extraction, two punch downs per day, and then a pump over if it's needed in the heart of the ferment. Southern right, it's also very gentle extraction, but there we can't really do punch down. And I think for the style, we, we prefer pump overs there. So two to three pump overs a day and fermented at slightly cooler temperatures than the Ashbourne Pinotage. It would seem as if we chose the Swartland because of how popular it is, and it is for a reason. I think there's some beautiful vineyards there. But we were looking for something on a lighter soil in a warmer climate to fit the style of that Ashbourne Pinotage Sinzo. It's a wine that we want to be lighter in structure, still a serious wine, but something that you can chill slightly and drink in our sort of climate. We've got lovely warm summer's days. You don't always want to drink a white wine or a rosé. And I think the, the Pinotage Sinzo fits that beautifully. It very often gets compared to Gamay, to Cru Beaujolais. It's a lighter styled red with beautiful aromatics. We get that from the granitic soils in the Swartland and that slightly warmer climate. The sort of tannin profile is different there for what we want. If you compare the Swartland fruit to Ashbourne uh, Pinotage grown in the Yimmel and Arda Valley, it would be almost undrinkable if you used the Ashbourne Pinotage from Ashbourne itself. The berries are smaller. There's a lot of tannin. It's a very generous grape when grown in the cooler climate. One of the biggest considerations when um, deciding when to pick is when the berries start softening, you'll have perfectly brown seeds and beautiful flavors and the right sort of sugar. Everything will be in balance, but the berries are almost sometimes too hard to, to process. So that's a completely different animal to work with. I'm sitting in Pal, which is, is a wine producing area that is almost... 60 miles or 65 miles from the, the west coast of the Cape Winelands. And between where I'm sitting and a range of hills that abuts the ocean is a large plain. And the soil on, on this plain is a decomposed shale soil, which is actually the youngest of our viticultural soil in the Cape. I believe it's something like 4 million years old. It's iron-rich soil that is agriculturally productive and it also is the area that before it was converted into agriculture held the largest number of species of plants in any specific area in the whole world. So my Pal vineyards are actually on the same soil body that the Swatland vineyards are and there is a thread in the style of the wine that is produced from this region. Breda Kloof, 
is is a wine producing region that's to the east of where we are now. We say on the other side of the mountain. And Bredekloof is an area that is south facing. It is a very significant range of mountains where the soil is decomposed granite. But the area has very high rainfall. The the rainfall there up on the side of the mountain, I can't visualize in inches, but it's eight to nine hundred millimeters of rain a year. The wine from Bredekloof is incredibly bright, intense. It's actually Zinfandeli in its structure and its intensity, not necessarily in its aromatic and flavor profile, but in its feel, in its sense. So big wine, big alcohol from that region. The same vineyard actually produces a very well-regarded pinotage from Flagstone Winery. The vineyard actually belongs to a guy called Dave Jefferson, and Dave Jefferson is from San Francisco, and Dave runs a investment fund that buys vineyards for their investors, and he owns some very important vineyards in places like Rutherford Bench and Spring Mountain and some of the very important appellations in California, and he loves South Africa, and he bought this farm. It's a great farm. It produces wonderful fruit. So yes, these very big, rich, robust wines. The Swartland wine that I produce tends to be a little more spicy in character. The alcohol tends to be more tempered. The wines are more medium bodied rather than really super rich. And when the wine has been written about in publications such as The Wine Advocate, it's often been commented that the wine has a feel of like a northern Rhone type of wine. Although it's obviously it's not Syrah and doesn't have the same aromatic profile, but it has some of the tension and the venosity perhaps that a wine like a Crozier Hermitage or something like that has. Serious wines are expected to age well. Old bottles of Pinotage often prove remarkable enough to make detractors reconsider what they think they know about the grape. Having tasted a lot of unbelievable pinotages over the years, it does age unbelievably well. I've tried everything back to 1959, the first commercial one, the Lanzarac pinotage. As far as we know, there were some Canoncorp grapes in there. Back in those days, we only sold wine. We didn't have the Canoncorp brand back in those days. We only exist since 1973 that we sell under the Canoncorp brand. But back in those days, we were selling wine to the big Stellenbosch Farmers Winery Company, and they owned the Lanzarac brand. And as far as we know, there was some Bellevue and Canuncop in that first Lanzarac as well. But it, it ages unbelievably well. When you come to Canuncop, we normally do an old versus young tasting to show people how dramatically it changes. Young Pinotage can be very pungent. And I think that's why a lot of people do like young Pinotage because it fits in with the taste habits of people today where they want a lot of fruit and, and a lot of freshness and all of those type of experience. So Pinotage offers you all of that when it's young. Also, it has a very, very specific structure. It doesn't have the dry tannins that you find with, for instance, Cabernet and Merlot. It, it has a much more, almost a fruit sweetness to the palate that makes it more accessible even when it's young. But as Pinotage matures, and if it's the right wine, and that means quality wine, you'll find that the Pinot Noir parent becomes more prominent over the years. And I'm talking about 10 years plus. You'll find that you get this forest floor, truffle, that type of characters, earthy notes that, that becomes much more prominent. 
if listeners have had like properly aged burgundy, that type of characters start to develop with time in a quality pinotage. So when you try a older pinotage, a 20 or 30 year old proper pinotage, you'll see that the structure becomes like velvet. You don't know how it gets in your mouth, but when you look again, the bottle is finished, becomes really such a effortless experience to drink older, well-aged pinotage. On the aromatic side, it's not the primary fruit anymore. Of course, you'll find less dark fruit and more of a red fruit expression, but more to the strawberry side, but not in a syrupy way, but in a fresh, almost more of a perfume way. And then the structure, it is just velvet and it becomes really effortless experience to drink such a beautiful old wine. So pinotages do develop really well, but it needs to be the right producer and if it's a really good vintage, you can also pick that up over a 10, 20, 30 year period. Aside from red wine, Pinotage makes appearances in some other wines as well. In episode one, Johann Milan at Simensig told us how he uses it in his method Cap Classique Rosé. At Painted Wolf, Jeremy makes a 100% Pinotage Rosé, not the bubbly kind in this case. From a perspective of a grape for making rosé, Pinotage is a great rosé grape. The, the parentage of Pinotage is on the one hand Pinot Noir and on the, on the other hand Cinso. And for some of the listeners who might not be familiar with Cinso, Cinso is a southern French grape variety. It's quite heavy bearing. It has big berries. It's relatively light in color. But a lot of the rosés from Provence that have become so fashionable over the last few years are made in part from Cinso, or maybe 100% Cinso, and some of the very famous ones that people have just been lapping up in the United States will have Cinso as an important component. And to make nice, elegant rosé, you need to pick grapes that are not hugely ripe. And Pinotage picked it relatively low sugar, shows traits of its parentage much more readily than Pinotage that is picked ripe. So... The, the sort of strawberry notes that Cinso has are found in Pinotage when it's picked at relatively low sugar. And then on the other hand, although Pinot Noir, at least in the minds of many American consumers, is not normally associated with making rosé, you find Pinot Noir rosés in the Loire Valley in France, and they are often very fine and very beautiful. So it's genetic heritage. It puts it in the right space. Pinotage also picks very early in the season. So the Pinotage that comes from the Swatland, we pick in January. And the wine can be in the market, in the most important export markets for South African wines in the summer. So it used to always be something of a joke that we could have new season rosé in time for Wimbledon. And people could sing and having a new season rosé and some new season strawberries from Kent in England at the same time. Fortunately... Maybe I shouldn't say this, but fortunately, there hasn't been a trend with Pinotage to go down a sort of white Zinfandel route and to make an off-dry wine with very little character. There are one or two producers in South Africa who make a white Pinotage. A producer called Melisat in particular makes an extremely beautiful wine, barrel fermented, and the wine actually smells like champagne that has a high amount of Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier in its base wine. It's got that kind of black currant leaf aroma 
that you find in those types of champagnes. He's actually over the years figured out how to harvest and how to vinify and how to press so that he gets basically no color out of the grapes and super, super light pressing, very low yielded juice per ton. And the wine is barrel fermented, malolactic, batonage, the whole story. And it's a very beautiful, creamy wine that has a mouthfeel sense of Chardonnay, but has this quite distinct aroma that one normally associates with champagne. My little company is called Painted Wolf Wines, and the name Painted Wolf is from the scientific name of an African wild dog. Their scientific name being Lycaon pictus. Lycos is the Greek for a wolf, and pictus is the Latin for painted. And African wild dogs have become quite fashionable now, and people pay a lot of money to go and see them on safari. They are the rarest large mammal in, in our part of the world, and actually they are one of the rarest carnivores on the planet. In past years, African wild dogs, as they were known, have been much maligned, and they had a lot of detractors, and lots of people hated them. And as with wolves in the United States, they were persecuted to within a fraction of extinction. That's what my company is based on, and sales of our wine contribute to raising funds for the conservation of the species. So anyway, Pinotage. Pinotage too was much maligned. It had a great many detractors and a lot of people who didn't care for it. And I sort of was scratching my head and I was thinking, well, you know, if, perhaps if we put the much maligned Pinotage and the much maligned African wild dogs in one little jar together and we shake the two of them up together and spill them out, we'll actually end up with something that's really pretty good and really pretty exciting. And that's basically what happened. It used to be really cool to dislike Pinotage, and it's not that way anymore. It's almost become cool to like it. I think there's a lot of fantastic examples of Pinotage on the market now. Viticulturists have stopped just planting it wherever they can, and people have put some thought into where they plant it and how they farm it. And then when it gets to the cellar, it's not just another grape. It's Pinotage, and they respect it, and they work with it with a goal of producing a great wine. To get a U.S. take on Pinotage, I turned to Adam Kniezer. Adam was the U.S. winner of the Wines of South Africa Sommelier Cup in 2019. He went over to Cape Town, competed against sommeliers from all around the world, and acquitted himself quite well. And I think I can also say he had a great time. Yeah, I think that's a that's an understatement, perhaps, if anything. <laughs> I was It was a great time being down there, meeting everybody else. It's nice to be among like-minded folks. And when you're not winning sommelier competitions, what are you doing at home in Pittsburgh then? So I suppose under other circumstances, I'd be out and about in the world teaching classes. And what I do is primarily consumer-focused wine education. And so as part of that, I teach at various venues throughout the city of Pittsburgh and the greater region. And I also do things like animate wine dinners with local chefs, consult for local establishments as well, and engage in some staff training. But by and large, it's customer and consumer-focused uh, education. But because of what's been happening lately, what I did was I took the classroom online. And so my business, Burgundy, with an H for Pittsburgh, now offers online wine education on a series of topics throughout the world of wine, including a South Africa-specific series in which I discuss the various regions producing wine. So you obviously know your way around South African wines. What was your first exposure to them? 
I remember when I was living in New York City, there was a wine on the shelf that I had never seen before, and the label really caught my attention, and it was the Kononkov Pinotage. And I remember seeing the cannon on the label and thinking, I have never heard of Kononkov. I don't know what Pinotage is. And so I grabbed a bottle just completely off the cuff. So I took it home, opened it with my husband, Mike, and I thought, ah, there's something here. Then I went back to the wine store and then I saw Hamilton Russell Pinot Noir and I thought, okay, let's give that a shot. And so those were my first real introductions to South African wine. And little did I know I was starting off at a pretty good baseline for quality. And I kind of continued more and more. And then I finally went to Cape Town as part of my last job when I was working in clinical research software training. And when I went to Cape Town, I discovered there was so much more to the story than what I was seeing on my local shelves. And so that's what really piqued my interest and got me that involved, I suppose, in the study of South Africa in particular as a producer. Very cool. So you started off with Pinotage, which um, very conveniently is what we're, we're here to talk about today. Maybe it's too long ago to remember, but can you recall what impression in terms of character and style the Kanunkov made on you? I really liked the ability of the wine to give me sweetness of fruit without a sweetness lingering on the palate. I think it struck a nice balance of aromas and flavors that I was familiar with from other wines, sort of the dark berry fruits, for instance. But there was a sweet character to the fruit that I found a little bit unique in terms of pinotage. Little did I understand that that was going to be a common thread throughout my exploration of the grape. But I liked that. And then there was also something kind of funky and weird about it. There was something sort of like runts candy from the childhood of putting a quarter into a machine and just remembering that. And there was just a faint whiff of that underneath the wine. And so it had a very unique signature while still hitting familiar notes that I quite liked. And so that was my first impression of the wine and what got me curious about exploring more. And since then, have you found Pinotage to stay within that character, or is there a bit of a range of styles in your experience? Oh, goodness. It is so much more diverse of a category now than it certainly was in 2009, you know, 2008, whenever it was that I first picked up that, that bottle. And so that is something for me that is a very welcome change of pace, because as I've learned more about wine and got more serious about it, my tastes have also changed. A little bit along the way and I've pulled back from the more full throttle types of red wines generally speaking and find myself more interested in restraint and lightness of touch and it's interesting to see that the pinotage landscape is also following that sort of trajectory as well with new lighter iterations that seem a little bit more like Beaujolais Cru than they do trying to chase Napa Cab. Well, how would you go about introducing Pinotage to an American wine drinker who hasn't had it before? That's something I get to do pretty frequently here in Pittsburgh, especially because we don't really have the most robust wine scene, if I can put that delicately. And so oftentimes when I'm putting a Pinotage in front of people, it's for the very first time. And for me, it's knowing my audience, because here in Pittsburgh, we do like our big red wines. California Cab is very much the signature variety that you're most likely to find anywhere in this city. And so what I try to do when I first put a pinotage in front of them is ask what they like, first and foremost, because that informs the direction in which I'm going to go. And so I like putting things like Ken Forrester's Petite in front of folks because it is that smoky, bacony kind of flavor while still 
giving dark fruit without all of the voluptuous body. And that creates a really unique reaction from people because above all else, when I have people try pinotage for the first time, they say, I've never had anything quite like that before. And it's generally a positive response in that way. And so I like using for the California cab drinkers things like that, which are tr admittedly a lighter style, but have the same robust flavor profile. And then if they express further interest in that, then we can go down the road of the Conon Cops, of the Bislars, of L'Avenir perhaps as well. But if I know that they like lighter bodied red wines, I would start in a completely different area. That's where I would pick up things like Southern Rite or David and Nadia, even Lamarschuk, just to give them a little bit different of a signature of the grape that lends itself more nicely to a lateral move based on what they're already drinking. I see you're already mentioning a few of the wines that we sent you in preparation for this conversation. Maybe to start with the Beesler. So Abby Beesler, we spoke to him earlier for this podcast, and um, he's both the winemaker and cellar master at Kanunkop, and he makes a little bit of wine on his own. How would you contrast uh, what he does at Kanunkop with his own wine? You definitely see his signature and his point of view in both of the wines, but for his own label, I still notice a really nice concentration of sweet black and red fruit, but there's also a very hint of chocolate that I find in here that's a little bit different from what I was noticing in Conon Cup, for instance. And so it's still got nice big structure. It's full, it's flavorsome. It's got a richness and a depth to it, but it almost feels like it has a slightly lighter touch on the palate, despite somewhat darker aromatics uh, that I perceive on the nose. The, the Bieslar, the Kanunkop, and you mentioned Lavenir, Simonsig, these are all part of a belt that stretches from Botlerai up to Simonsburg, Stellenbosch. But we also sent you uh, Southern Rite, which is from down in Walker Bay. What did you think of that one? So pressed, if I had to choose for, for me and my, my personal preferences, I tend to lean a little bit more Southern Rite because there's a smoky, almost iron-like, blood-like sensation in there that I really enjoy. And the way that Pinotage's trademark, perhaps smoke or tar, or however people want to characterize that unique little bit that the grape gives us, comes across, I find, particularly well in the cooler environment of Walker Bay. It's just this really nice, smoky, brambly, mulberry sensation with maybe something like blood orange knocking at the back door just a little bit. So I quite like it because it does have a little bit more of a restraint. And for me, again, personally, it just is, is a little bit more silken and, and light to the touch, which is where I gravitate personally. So it's just a very different style that showcases, I think, that Pinotage is not just this monolithic beast that only produces one style of wine. It really does respect its environment and showcase its conditions pretty nicely. Huh. I know we sent we, we have one other which is a little bit of an unusual uh, manifestation of Pinotage, uh, maybe to, Let's to say some curveball. A curveball, yeah. We've got one that's a curveball coming. But I think before we get to that, you happen to have a couple on hand of your own, the David and Nadia and the Lammershook. And they're that's both right. from the Swartland, which is an area I did not send you a sample of, so I'd love to hear your take on the Swartland expression of Pinotage. Yeah, I, I think these are a little bit more experimental approaches in a certain sense to Pinotage, at least changing how people have approached winemaking with the grape just a little bit and, and new techniques in terms of harvest times and the ways in which they're vinified. 
And these are those truly light-bodied iterations. I mean, the Lamarchuk Lam is in some ways visually almost like a dark rosé compared to what you would expect out of a Pinotage, thinking about how opaque and inky and, and big they looked just looking at them in the glass, whereas the Lam is a very pale concentration of color. And it gives a little bit more of a berry fruit and a florality almost, which is completely different and outside of the box from the more traditional classic producers like the Conon Club, like the Beiderskluf, and the other ones like Simosig that you had referenced a little bit earlier. And so I really like the direction of the Swartland producers that I have here on hand and that general style. And I don't think it's just restricted to them. I remember being down there for the Sam Cup and when we were speaking with Kabzicht and, and Danny Stettler and how he kind of had that experimental, more Beaujolais style going on to contrast with the more house style, if you will. And I think that's the direction in which I'm placing uh, my stock and my faith for Pinotage to capture a little bit larger of an audience and showcase its more elegant side. All right, so that brings us to the barista. And if you want to get a sense for the style, well, the clue is in the name. Uh, Adam, what did you think of the barista? This is a wine that I see being a little bit of a Vegemite in the sense that some people will absolutely adore it and some people will loathe it with every ounce of their being. But it's an interesting case study, I think, because we sometimes like to think about how wines are supposed to be and should be, forgetting sometimes that there might be other people out there who have a very different opinion. And I think this style of pinotage has gone to show that. And so as controversial as it might be, yes, it smells and tastes a lot like coffee. And I could be wrong here. Please, Jim, feel free to correct me. But I, this was a style pioneered by Diemersfontein, right? Well, the winemaker was, yes, a Diemersfontein at the time. But this is the same winemaker. He worked at a couple other uh -huh. wineries and then began doing this on his own a few years ago. That's right. Yeah, I, I remember Dimash Fontaine being the first exposure even that I had to it. I remember ordering a glass of wine at the hotel bar at the Western in Cape Town. And I, you know, Dimash Fontaine Pinotage was on offer. And so I ordered that thinking that I was going to get something like the wines with which I was already familiar. And then I got this placed in front of me and I, I was very confused. I had never had this style of wine before. And I almost went as far as asking, you know, did you pour me a pinotage? And so it, it was a great case study in me, myself, getting an education on the different styles of it out there in the real world. And so I can understand where a consumer might be coming from, not really realizing that this is a dedicated style that's a little bit outside of the norm. Right. But a, a fun expression of pinotage that takes advantage of pinotage's ability to extract a lot of color and flavor really quickly as it ferments. Yeah, absolutely. And you put that in concert with toasted staves or something like that, and you get a product that's entirely different from anything else. And so it's a little bit of a curiosity, right, within the world of Pinotage, but it very much exists. And there is a segment of consumer who really likes it. And so here, even in Pittsburgh, I've seen folks who will readily be buying Barista, for instance, because they really enjoy the fact that it doesn't quite taste like wine in the sense that they might be used to. One last question for you then. Have you had much chance to taste any older Pinotage? I have. I remember I've had a Lanzarac from 92. I've had 2004 Conon And I want to say I've had an older vintage of Bayerskluf at one point as well. 
And what surprised me, perhaps shouldn't have surprised me, but they held up really interestingly. Uh, the, the freshness of fruit hangs around, the acidity levels were there to carry it through pretty gracefully. And I don't know why I had this prejudicial idea that it wouldn't necessarily hold up, but of course it would. I mean, it's got all the parts and it's built for the long haul, especially some of these iterations. And so I found it to be really interesting to see the ways in which they evolve and still retain that interesting cross section, I would say, of sweet red and sweet purple to black fruit, just ever so delicately walking that tightrope in between and keeping it fresh somehow 15, 20 years later. Adam, it's been great talking with you. Thank you very much for your time. And hopefully we'll open a bottle of Pinotage together sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And to more Pinotage and glasses worldwide. Cheers to that. Thanks very much for joining me for our look at Pinotage. If you haven't had a chance to try one, I hope you'll rectify that. And if you have tasted a Pinotage in the past that wasn't up to snuff, I hope you'll take another look and check out what South Africa's winemakers are doing with the grape today. While you do, you can also visit our website for links to the producers we spoke with, maps, and Adam's Burgundy with an H for Pittsburgh website. That's at wosa.us. While you're there, please check out the Wines of South Africa Psalm session, your chance to enjoy a private online tasting of South African wine under the guidance of a helpful sommelier. Get together a group of friends on Zoom or whatever video conference platform you prefer, have each one open up a bottle of South African wine, and we'll arrange for a sommelier to kick off your online party with an hour-long rundown of the wines. You'll find more details on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Did you hear where Emil Ross said Hamilton Russell Vineyards, Southern Wright, and Ashbourne were based? It's the Hemelinarda, a small valley south along the coast, and the subject of our next episode. If you like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, you'll want to tune in, and the reason is in the name. Hemelinarda means heaven and earth. (laughs) 